I'm Dr. Nathaniel Chin, and you're listening to Dementia Matters, a podcast about Alzheimer's disease. Dementia Matters is a production of the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. Our goal is to educate listeners on the latest news in Alzheimer's disease research and caregiver strategies. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to Dementia Matters. Today I'm joined by Dr. Frank Lynn, Director of the Cochlear Center for Hearing and Public Health and Professor of Otolaryngology, Medicine, Mental Health, and Epidemiology at Johns Hopkins University. Dr. Lynn's research has established the association of hearing loss with cognitive decline and dementia and has served as the basis for the 2020 Lancet Commission on Dementia's conclusion that hearing loss is a leading modifiable risk factor for dementia. Today, he joins us to talk about the NIH-funded Aging and Cognitive Health Evaluation in Elders Study, also known as ACHIEVE, very clever, which he serves as the co-principal investigator on. In July 2023, Dr. Lin published a study in The Lancet, which investigated whether treating hearing loss through different hearing interventions could reduce the risk of cognitive decline and dementia in older adults. So Dr. Lin, welcome to Dementia Matters. So to begin, what made you interested in studying modifiable risk factors for dementia, but especially hearing loss? You know, Nate, so this all began like, I don't want to go too far back, but, I, you know, I did my residency in, in ENT surgery many, many years ago. And then at that time, I had always had a, a large bent toward public health, Both my parents were public health researchers, but I always liked surgery because you get something done. And it was a lot of fun. But as I went through my residency, the one, I'll tell you one clinical observation, which always jumped out at me more than anything else, was that, you know, if I showed you or you saw an audiogram and it showed basically, you know, mild to moderate loss, which is not uncommon, but that audiogram belonged to an eight-year-old, let's say an eight-year-old girl. That would be critically important. You got to address it. Most insurance companies will cover it. But all of a sudden you scratch off like Annie and now she's not eight and now she's 88. All of a sudden it's met with a collective shrug saying like, oh yeah, you have a mild to moderate hearing loss. You know, Annie, you could do something about it if you want. And it always jumped out at me as a huge, well, massive clinical paradox. How could the same physiologic impact on hearing be critically important for an eight-year-old but not for an 88-year-old? And part of that was guided too by my, um, I grew up with my grandmother. My grandmother had a probably early adult life hearing loss related to streptomycin. She got streptomycin many years ago. So she always has lived with essentially a, um, a more marked hearing loss than other people would. But I always grew up with her and I always understood, I, I saw, witnessed the impact that it had like on her daily life, her daily conversations. And I, I couldn't help but think that that same Annie eight-year-old audiogram in my grandmother, how could it not be important? And yet the research was never... Well, I should say the clinical impression was always has not meant nothing. And as I delved a little deeper into it and developed some collaborators at the National Institute on Aging at Hopkins, where I'm based, they're like, you know, Frank, you're right. There's actually just not any research on it, right? It's just an empirical clinical guess, probably because it's so common hearing loss, but there actually wasn't any research on it. Well, I appreciate hearing that story. And it isn't always fascinating to me how these different parts of your life and your identity come together. And then you asking these questions and not getting the responses you need and then there you go. That's the beginning of your, your career path. And I'll, I'll tell you the same time, Nate, like the person I met actually around this time, uh, just through a little bit of luck, a little bit of serendipity is Luigi Frucci. So Luigi Frucci is now the scientific director of the NIA. Back then when I was still with the residency, he was the director of the Baltimore Longitudinal Study of Aging at the NIA, right? And we, <laughs> we connected because his next door neighbor happened to be one of my, one of my mentors. He was an ophthalmologist, epidemiologist, and 
and David Friedman, uh, my colleague, said, you know, Frank, you, you would really benefit from just bouncing some ideas off of Luigi. I was like, okay. <laughs> so I met Luigi and that's where this all began. And I, I mentioned to him at that point, there was actually, this is crazy to say this, in 1988 or 89, there was a case control study published in JAMA. So classic bread and butter epidemiology case control study of hearing and dementia. Published in JAMA, published in JAMA in 1989, showing a dose-dependent relationship between greater hearing loss severity and odds of dementia. And from 1989 until when I came across the paper in 2009, nothing had been done. No further research. I mean, you just put in Google Scholar, people have cited, but there's nothing done. Yet everything would point toward, you have a case control study, the lowest level of sort of epidemiologic evidence. What do you do next? You do an longitudinal study, you go from there, blah, 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 right? It was never done. And I think it had to do a lot with these silos. You know, for me, I'm an ENT surgeon. I know everything about hearing. but And now I understand a lot about dementia. But I, back then, I understood a little bit. I understood public health. I did, a, I, did, I did my PhD in school of public health. But people weren't thinking about that. And people in the dementia and neurology space understood nothing about hearing. Right? So it's a classic effect of, of silos. And it just happened. I was able to bridge that silo with Luigi, who was interested in collaborating. I was interested in collaborating. And the rest is sort of the next, the last like 15 years of my life, actually. <laughs> for background, for our listeners, though, what is this relationship between hearing loss and cognitive impairment? You talk about a study from the 1980s. What have the studies shown? Yeah. So, okay. So uh, going back to that, that JAMA paper, 1989 or 1980 by Ullman and colleagues, it, it showed, again, hearing as measured with an audiogram, basically how loud do sounds have to be for you to hear. It's a, it's a, just a classic clinical measure, just gives you an idea of the function of the inner ear, right? Um, they found a dose per relation between greater hearing loss and odds of dementia, but it's a case control study. So what the tract of research that, that I began in around 2010 with, with, uh, in collaboration with Luigi Frucci and colleagues at the NIA was beginning to look at that in, in deeper depth using longitudinal studies, right? So next step, longitudinal study, observational studies, older adults have been followed for many, many years. In the BLSA, the Baltimore Longitudinal Study of Aging, one of the longest ongoing studies of aging in the United States, funded internally by the NIA. Uh, just coincidentally, they had measured hearing on their participants in the early 90s. They did it for a few years until, I'm not joking, the booth broke, the audiometer broke. So they said, ah, no one's using the hearing data anyway, let's just stop doing it, right? But for four years, they had very good hearing data. And then coincidentally, and that's a big feature of the BLSA study is to focus on aging, especially neurological outcomes. So they had adjudicated dementia diagnoses as well, tracked longitudinally. People followed every two or three years. So the analysis, I got to tell you, is just simple. We did an analysis of looking at baseline hearing, looking at the risk, the basically the hazard of, of incident dementia over time, adjusting for and c- controlling for age and sex and diabetes, much, any, any of the confounder you think of, we adjusted for. And we saw in that study, which was published in 2011, back in those archives of neurology, now it's called JAMA Neurology, no surprise compared to the case control study, a dose-dependent effect between greater hearing loss and the risk of being diagnosed with dementia over time. And I say dose-dependent because it was, it was market. It was basically compared to people with normal hearing, people with a mild, a moderate, severe hearing loss basically had a twofold a threefold and a fivefold increased hazard or risk of dementia. Those are huge risk estimates, as we all know. So I'll be honest, when we when Luigi and I first saw this, it was sort of like a exciting, but oh no, sort of moment. It says, do we really believe this, right? Um, but you know, we did all the sensitivity analyses and it, it all held up no matter what we did with the analyses. It was published in JAMA Neurology, Archives Neurology back then, 2011. And we were a little guarded about it, actually. Like, is this going to get, is this, uh, what's, what's going to happen? As you know, the hallmark of good science, though, always, Nate, is just replication, formally replication from 
people have, you don't know at all. So then a year later in, um, in neurology, John Callagher's group in, uh, in Oxford, uh, they realized they also, in their longitudinal study, also had, had had hearing measured at some point, too, and never looked at registered dementia. They did the exact same analysis, basically, as us. Lo and behold, same set of results. Since then, this has been replicated multiple times since. So that is the relationship. So I guess the next question, I hope you're going to ask, Nate, but I'm going to ask for you. is like, why, right? I mean, so what gives here? So this is what I spent a lot of my time in 2010, literally going through psychology and neurology and books going back all the way back to the 60s, really thinking about, you know, there were some hypotheses proposed in the original Ullman paper from 1989, but they weren't really, I mean, it wasn't really thought, really thought of that well yet. So I, I basically took a deep dive into it. From my perspective, coming at it from, I understand everything about the ear and how the ear, how the brain processes sound, did a crash course and really getting a deeper dive with Luigi's help into and Susan Resnick's help looking into dementia and dementia disorders and things like that. And ultimately, and, we, and also along with Marilyn Albert, uh, working with her at the time, we, we hypothesized an initial paper and subsequently sort of codified a little later in, in a broader theory-based paper. There's sort of the three major mechanisms now, which I think probably pretty much are well, pretty much, I think, well-established now, well-accepted, well, well I should not well-said, well-accepted of being the three major mechanisms to which hearing loss increases dementia risk and cognitive decline. So the first mechanism gets at the idea of cognitive load. And what I mean by that is when you have impaired hearing, as what it basically means is that it's not that you can't hear, it's just that your ear is constantly sending a much more garbled signal to your brain because the ear has been damaged progressively. The ear is post-mitotic. So it doesn't matter who you are, everyone's hearing gets worse gradually over your lifetime. So if the brain is constantly receiving a much more garbled signal from the ear, what essentially has to happen, we know this from the auditory literature, the brain actually reallocates resources to help with hearing. It's like you're constantly shuttling more brain resources to dealing with a much more garbled sound. And in turn, the understanding is colloquially, it comes with expense for thinking memory. But why? The thought there is not so much that hearing loss causes dementia, but hearing loss taps into the cognitive reserve that otherwise could have been used to buffer against amyloid neuropathology that could have been buffered against microvascular pathology. But that buffer that we all know exists, that cognitive reserve, which we, we, we know exists in many ways, it constantly taxes and, and taps that buffer. And then I'll tell you, that goes beyond just theory now. So you actually see this on fMRI studies. You see, you see resource allocation, people even with a mild hearing loss. So basically, really using parts of the frontal lobe for auditory processing, which you normally do not need to use. And yet you're seeing that with hearing loss. So it's, so it's not so much that hearing loss caused dementia, but hearing loss leads to much earlier phenotypic exposure of dementia because you're tapping into that reserve that otherwise could have buffered against known dementia pathologies. So that's one mechanism. The second mechanism, it's interesting because it sounds similar, but it's actually completely different. And there's actually a line of evidence for this too. It's the idea that auditory deprivation, an impoverished auditory signal sending to the brain actually does lead to trophic effects on structural atrophy of the brain. And we see this actually, it's interestingly, you can, you can do animals, you can, you can section a guinea pig's hearing or give it a hearing loss, and you actually see section pathologically months later, the effects it has on brain actually structural loss, right? You see this in human studies in terms of longitudinal MRI scans. So we've done this in the BLSA and other studies now, you follow cohort of older adults, I mean, people 50, 60 and plus, you see who has hearing loss, who doesn't in the beginning, you look at their brains in the beginning, not much difference in size cross-sectionally. But if you follow them longitudinally, what you see is accelerated rates of atrophy, particularly over the lateral temporal lobe, among those with greater hearing loss versus those with normal hearing, right? And again, it gets the idea maybe very much, I, don't, I shouldn't say colloquially use it or lose it, but in a way, auditory deprivation leading to structural atrophy. So that's a second mechanism. Sounds similar, but it's actually different because that second mechanism really implies actually that hearing loss actually is, quote unquote, possibly directly 
damaging the brain in terms of its structural integrity, right? The third mechanism is going to be the most intuitive for almost anyone. It's the idea that if you can hear well, you may not go out as much. You may not participate as much in conversations. You may not participate as much in cognitively stimulating activities. I mean, it sounds common sense. But if you really believe that, I mean, I think many people would agree, and the literature is still a little, I shouldn't say all over the place, but the literature is consistent. No one knows the exact mechanism. But participation in cognitively stimulating activities, social activities, let's just say it's good for the brain, right? So in the end, it's three, it's three mechanisms, none of which are mutually exclusive. It's likely a combination of all three now. What we never knew with these hypotheses though in place though, does it actually reflect distally and actually rates of cognitive client dementia? And if you believe the epidemiologic literature, it, it sure does. I mean, to the two now, you mentioned your, your really kind introduction, the Lancet Commission on Dementia, right? Out of all known existing potentially modifiable risk factors, I mean, theoretically, they classify both in their 2017 and their 2020 meta-analyses that hearing loss is single-handedly the single largest potentially modifiable risk factor for dementia, um, purely because in many ways of the risk ratio between hearing loss and dementia in the literature, but also because hearing loss is so common, right? I mean, the prevalence of hearing loss doubles over every age decade. By the time you look at seniors 65 plus, Two-thirds of everyone over 65 has a hearing loss. It's all of us, right? So it's a it's not only a risk factor that is really common, but the risk ratios are large as well. You know, it's it's funny, Frank, because I usually will ask researchers, you know, what's the mechanism? And there's a lot of pause because people are very <laughs> careful. Well, I can't promise, like it could be this, but not you. You feel very confident and it all makes sense to me. So you've given us a lot to as background and context. Can you then explain to us, you know, what is the ACHIEVE study that you did? What, what groups of individuals were you studying? What were you measuring? Yeah, thanks, Nate. So you can imagine, so all, all these observational studies to date now I've mentioned before, fairly, fairly, fairly consistent across studies, greater hearing loss associated with increased risk of cognitive decline uh, and or dementia, depending on what the study's measuring, right? So a natural corollary to that then as well, um, does that mean, is this just a theoretical like academic tidbit or does it actually mean at the population level or the individual level, if someone quote unquote treated their hearing loss, does that reduce risk of cognitive dementia, right? And that is by no means guaranteed, right? Because when you quote unquote treat hearing loss with a hearing aid and associated audiological support services, you're not reversing the hearing loss. That hearing loss is still there. I mean, it is a rehabilitative intervention. There is still damage to the cochlea. The cochlea is still sending an impaired signal to the brain. It's just that with a hearing aid and using it well and learning how to use it, you're providing a clear auditory input, which can lessen that burden on the brain, right? So does that actually transfer across and that actually, does that reduce risk? I mean, that's, it's such a, such a basic question. Okay, hearing loss related to cognitive dementia. If you treat it with our existing interventions, does it actually reduce risk? So before the ACHIEVE trial, which I'll get to in a second, we can never answer that because observational studies, right? You could, you could actually look at these studies of um, observational studies and some, about 20% of people on average use hearing aids with hearing loss. And you can look at those data and do they do better than people who don't use hearing aids? So I never talk about this and I never show in the papers. They actually do for the most part, right? But you can't believe it though, right? Because you can imagine people who have hearing loss use hearing aids versus those who have hearing loss who don't use hearing aids they're completely different people, right? People who get hearing aids, they are healthier, they are wealthier, they're more health conscious, right? All of which would bias toward a positive effect. So you can't, certainly you can't attribute causation with intervention around uh, from observational study. So the ACHIEVE trial, this was a definitive, essentially, you guys can call it technically called more of a phase three, that's not a pharmacologic study, but it is designed to be a definitive study looking at whether hearing intervention basically hearing aids and associated audiological support services 
does that versus a education control intervention, basically a general health education control intervention, does that reduce rates of cognitive decline, global cognitive decline over a three-year period in older adults? So these are specifically older adults in the study. The inclusion criteria was 70, 84 older adults cognitively intact. Basically, they have a, they had a certain threshold mini mental score, non-indicative dementia, uh, and they had to have a mild to moderate level of hearing loss. From that perspective, that is about 50% of people, 5-0, people 74 would have that level of hearing loss. This is not like extreme. This is the majority of people have that level of hearing loss. And the, the trial was fundamentally if you got if they got randomized, half got hearing intervention, half got education control. They were then followed uh, as a semi-annually with an annual battery of a 45-minute neurocognitive battery. And we looked at rates of cognitive decline. Now, the trial itself was pretty unique. We partnered actually with an existing study called the ERIC study, or the Atherosclerosis Risk and Community Studies. There's a study that's been funded by the NHLBA, Heart Lug Blood Institute. It's a very long-standing observational epidemiologic study started 35 years ago, looking at midlife older adults back then, followed to the present day, just looking at how midlife vascular risk factors contribute to late life vascular disease, basic cardiovascular events. So these 16,000 people initially have been followed for almost 35 years at four different sites across the country. David Notman's part of that study because for the last 10 years has transitioned more to a cognition study. So this ERIC study was based off of just random sample of older adults 30 years ago been followed to the present day represent just really a general population now at this point with attrition, right? But fortunately in Eric though, um, they have all these protocols. They have, they have the cognitive testing protocols, dementia adjudication overseen by Marilyn Albert and David Notman. I mean, so nesting the trial within them was great. So the achieved trial was based within the Eric field sites. And then for the achieved trial, uh, we shared a lot of the same existing testing protocols about a quarter of the th nearly 1,000 people who were recruited into the trial were recruited directly from ERIC. So basically, people who are even following ERIC for over 30 years, we, we saw their hearing because that was being tested already as part of ERIC study. We said, hey, you could be in the study. Do you want to join? And they said, yeah, sure. Why not? I'll join the study. So they, about a quarter of people came from ERIC participants. The other three quarters of people we basically recruited from basically healthy de novo cohort. People who respond to Facebook ads about like a study on cognition, aging, and health. Uh, people respond in registries of people interested in cognition studies and things like that. So two different study populations, one population from Eric probably represents much more of a sort of a general population, the healthy volunteers, the de novo group representing really, um, I would say the worried well in a good way. These are healthy community volunteers interested in, in an aging study. When we did the trial, they're all about nearly a thousand people recruited from 2018 to 2019. Fortunately, everyone got recruited and randomized before the pandemic hit. They were randomized to hearing intervention versus the education control. And then they were then followed for three years with annual measures of, is a global neurocognitive battery that we've been using Eric for the last 10 years, developed actually originally by David Notman, Tom Mosley, uh, Marilyn Albert, and a bunch of other people involved with the Eric study. We had the last three-year visit at the end of 2022, three to four months for database lock. We finished database lock in April 2023. We had the initial trial readout, April 2023. We submitted our results to the Lancet mid-June 2023, and it was accepted and published a month later. It's a crazy timeline. It was a hectic few months. Yeah, so it's you know, fundamentally a um, pivotal, technically, I guess you would call it a phase three in a way, phase three clinical trial looking, does treating hearing loss reduce cognitive decline? This the timeline in the story is fascinating, Frank, and so and you're and you're you're kind of leaving this teaser for our listeners, and I appreciate that from an artistic standpoint. So, what did you find? 
All right, so what do we find? All right, so in the in the primary analysis, which is including everybody, the Eric cohort and the new, we analyze them all together. Drum roll, no effective hearing intervention. The, the rates of three-year rates of global cognitive decline between air between hearing intervention versus control was basically the same. So I'll be honest, I still remember the moment I saw the initial trial readout results in mid-April, and I can't say the word on air, but it was like an O-F moment, okay? It was like, oh God, what do we do? But, and this is the big, big, big but, um, one of our, our pre-specified other analyses that always was pre-planned was that we would replicate the primary cohorts, the, prim the primary analysis of global cognitive decline in the ERA cohort and the de novo cohort differently because we realized that these two cohorts may be very, very different. And that's where the fun stuff is. So in the ERA cohort, you see over three years, statistically significant by far, nearly, basically nearly, well, 48%, nearly a 50% reduction in global cognitive decline over three years. In the de novo cohort over three years, hearing invention, no difference. So like, why? Well, this in 2020 hindsight makes complete sense. The, air, the de novo cohort over three years, the control group, basically had no cognitive decline, right? Because, and it makes sense because these were the healthy volunteers. If you have a healthy volunteer who joins a cognition study, they don't have cognitive decline because they're too healthy. So in, in three years, they really had literally, when I say no cognitive decline, they declined by about 0.15 standard deviation units. So not much, right? So lo and behold, if the hearing intervention is predicated on reducing cognitive decline, you can't reduce something that's not really declining. In contrast, the ERIC cohort, the control subjects had about nearly a threefold faster rate of cognitive decline over three years than they know. They basically had about a 0.4 standard deviation effect size change over three over three years, which is a lot. I mean, 0.5 standard deviation is a lot. They changed 0.4 standard deviations over three years in the control group. And lo and behold, in that ERA cohort with the hearing intervention, you see about a 50% reduction in cognitive decline. I mean, it's 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 really, really stunning, right? So yeah, and the combined court, nothing. It was basically the de novos masked everything, right? Because actually, it's interesting. There are two thoughts. Why did the de novos not decline over three years? One clear thing is that they're likely, honestly, the worried well. These are like high-level people who respond to Facebook ads while cognition. And those prize three years, they don't decline very much, right? So that's one. And if you look at baseline demographic factors between Eric versus de novos, the de novos, they had higher education, higher income lower rates of hypertension, lower rates of diabetes, right? Their baseline cognitive scores were higher than the ERICs, right? So this all glides in that direction. That all makes sense. But another reason, which is really interesting, uh, Nate, that came up a lot when we presented these results at the Alzheimer's Association meeting in, in Amsterdam, was the fact that the de novo core was essentially a cognitively testing naive cohort. And as we all know, it's been shown many, many studies, there are true practice effects of cognitive testing that sometimes pan out three, four years later. So how much of actually very little cognitive decline over three years, point, I think it's 0.16 standard deviation unit change over three years, is mass somewhat because these people are still getting better at cognitive testing. In contrast, don't forget Eric, well, not only they're slightly higher to risk factors, these people have been followed for 30 years who get routine cognitive testing every, every from one to three years. I mean, you're not, I assume it, like you're not seeing practice effects anymore after 30 years. So what you're observing, Eric, may be just much more of a true rate of cognitive climb. These are not benefit from practice effects anymore. Whereas de novos could be a combination. They honestly were healthier and had better cognitive base, baseline. But how much of their self-benefit from practice effects too? Right. I think that's a good point. And the fact that you had more of the de novo in your combined group than you did the Eric. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, they de novo. I mean, it was um, I, uh, it was like seven or thirty-eight de novos, to roughly two hundred and forty Eric's. Right. So what's even actually really crazy too is that the fact in with only essentially around two forty Eric participants that you're seeing that strong of an effect size of just a three-year cognitive change that even makes it even more impressive, right? That you're seeing even relatively, well, no, it's not small, but it's not huge. Like even 10,000 people, you said, you, you, you look at the treatment effect, it's like, oh, that's great, but it, is it really that meaningful? That's honestly the only reason it was statistically significant because the 240 is big, but it's not that big. But the effect size was large. I mean, 48% reduction is nothing to sneeze at, right? Another thing I'll add there too, which is really interesting too, Nate, that this is brought up by Tom Mosley, who's one of the co-investigators. He's obviously, he's a University of Mississippi, leads a mind center there is he found it really personally, scientifically really compelling too, is that the ERIC participants, right, they are the ones at greatest risk, right? And yet you're still seeing a benefit. Because how often do we see interventions where it's too little, too late for a group, right? And the other interesting thing too is that, you know, one measure we did at baseline is something called, um, it's a terrible name, but it's called the hearing handicap inventory. It's basically a self-reported scale of communication impairment, right? So Likert scale, do you feel, do you struggle when you go out in restaurants? Do you feel embarrassed when you go out with others in a large group? So it's a self-reported communication scale, right? And then if you look at those scores at baseline, uh, what's really interesting is that among the Eric and the De Novos at baseline, they basically had similar levels of objective hearing. They're something called the pure tone average, about 40, which is the mild and moderate range. And they're basically identical. They're both groups were, I think, 139.8 and 39.6, but they same levels of objective hearing. But the De Novos actually had a much higher level of communication impairment at baseline. And that makes sense. If you're joining a hearing and aging study, you're probably joining it because you want a free hearing aids, right? So it made sense. Whereas the Eric participants, their hearing handicap scores are actually much lower. They're at the level where typically those people you wouldn't think would even want to come in for a hearing aid. And honestly, I think they wouldn't. The only reason they joined the studies, they were already in this other study. So the reason I'm saying this is the fact that people who wouldn't even want to come in for hearing aids, right, who weren't even really noticing that they were having communication issues, were the ones who benefited from this intervention sort of blows my mind, right? I mean, because you can't, it's almost like it, it actually guides public health um, strategies because if you're saying, okay, just nowadays if people come in, they need a hearing aid, we'll pay for it for them, right? You actually can't go by that strategy in a way. It's almost you have to reach out to people and to say, listen, even though you don't feel like you have any problems, your hearing level objectively is at a level where you could benefit, you could possibly really benefit. So it's, it's, there are a lot of little nuggets here that we're even just still teasing out. It's interesting to think that your initial reaction was one of, oh, no, to like, wow, look at what we continue to find with this treasure trove of data and the benefit that people actually are experiencing. And so then as a physician scientist, you know, what does this mean for you when you think about hearing aids as an intervention, not only for hearing loss, but as an intervention to prevent dementia in some individuals? Well, so dementia, as you know, is dementia is not that common. So in the ACHIEVE trial, even though we have adjudicated dementia, there was no effect of three years, no surprise. I mean, there are only like, I think a total of like 15 cases. And there are actually, you know, I think there were fewer cases in the hearing metric group, but I mean, it's like, I don't know, five versus nine. I mean, nothing right home. They're not that many. So clearly, hypothetically, if you're reducing cognitive decline, you think that would carry over distal effects, reduce dementia onset many years down the road. That's going to be hard to ever figure out though. And I, what I mean by that is actually the ACHIEVE trial now that we're finished with the three-year follow-up, we've actually very generously, courtesy of the NIH, 
it's being funded for another three years of follow-up. So we'll have long-term six-year results as well, too. So maybe we'll be able to answer that in six years because there'll be more, obviously, cases accruing over the over a timeline. But I don't know if we'll ever have the, the numbers to really look at dementia. I mean, fortunately, dementia is relatively a rare event in a good way, right? That the definitive uh, evidence of whether treating heroes can reduce dementia risk, right? Uh, that I think would be, I mean, you know, most dementia trials for, for, for forget, for not in a rich cohort, this, this core is not rich for amyloid or anything like that or MCI. I mean, those are two, three, four thousand person studies really get those numbers. And this, we do not have that achieved. So I don't think we'll ever look at, I don't think we'll have a hard outcome of dementia because the numbers will never be there to going from primary prevention all the way to dementia really, really hard, right? This is not in a rich population for any people at risk of cognitive decline or dementia at all. But at least this this study and the data you're talking about, it shows evidence for clinicians to tell their patients, well, you, you may benefit from this, or you, there's a 50% reduction here in thinking changes later on. I mean, this was this is going to help people. Yeah, you yeah, know, absolutely. You know, Nate, I, I, and I think we can't forget the, um, <laughs> the singular thing here. Hearing invention, yes, without a doubt, I think that Achieve Trial really shows there could be a very strong cell reducing cognitive decline. Don't forget the whole issue of treating heroes from the very beginning is like, so you communicate with mom or dad better, <laughs> your kids better, and you might be a little more active in conversations and all this other, like all the, let's say, very proximal stuff. Think of that. And then, yes, distally, that has cut care of effects. I mean, unfortunately, I mean, I mean hearing intervention is about as no risk, or low risk. I mean, I can't, actually, I really can't think of a risk of using hearing aids or anything like that, right? I mean, maybe, well, I don't know. I mean, theoretically, I guess you can give you some irritation, things like that. It's a no risk intervention right? That only has positive upsides, right? So it's funny, and I, a lot of people brought this up at the AIC meeting. I, mean, I didn't want to answer it. It, it was it, a lot of AIC now, there's a lot around amyloid lowering agents, right? Amyloid therapies, and there's a lot of new results presented there. And it's really, it's exciting. I mean, it's really an example of just really good understanding from basic biology, drug development, and trials, right? But as we all know, those therapies are not without risk. So people keep asking, well, Frank, what do you think about that? Rather than that, I'm like, oh, I'm not touching on the 10 foot pole, right? But it, it is in terms of a no risk, a no risk intervention that only has care of or benefits on just socialization and communication. And oh yeah, it could confer a 50% reduction in cognitive decline. It does seem to be a no brainer if you ask me, right? Because I mean, what is the downside? I I don't know. Well, okay, actually, I'll tell you one side, and we can go in this, we don't have to, this, this is outside the purview of this podcast, but it's how I spend a lot of my time now, is there's cost. They're bloody expensive, right? But that's something uh, years ago we began, I began working with Congress, the White House, National Academies. We got a law passed actually uh, six years ago now, went into effect last year. Now, as some people may realize, hearing aids now officially over the county of the United States, but it's just the tip of the iceberg. The big companies that are likely planning to enter the space, the big consumer tech companies who could really innovate these companies like Samsung or companies like Apple, they have not entered yet. But if you look at news reports, it's only a matter of time. So that changed dynamics very quickly of pricing, accessibility, appeal, innovation of hearing technologies that we're just beginning to see now over the next few years. I think you're gonna see a ton of really exciting innovation, accessibility, around hearing devices. I mean, tongue in cheek, are those AirPod Pros you're wearing? Are those hearing aids? Well, they could be one and the same, right? So I think that's that that makes it very exciting because I think one real risk actually is, you know, well, frank cost, right? So, but I think that is going to be changing very dynamically in the next few years. And Frank, you, I mean, you alluded to what my last question is going to be. In that, in this podcast, we talk a lot about prevention, avoiding things that are probably negative for our brain. 
And so it's a two part question. One, because of the work you do, you know, how careful are you about your hearing? Do you go to concerts, for instance, do you avoid <laughs> loud noises? Yeah, yeah. But then really my question for you too is, what do you think of in-ear headphones? You brought up AirPods Pro and I have nothing for or against Apple, but what do you think about people wearing these devices that are right next to their eardrum? Yeah, so great question. So I'll answer, you know, answer your, your more immediate question first. So um, um, you're younger than me, Nate, I can clearly tell, right? They've been saying this since the early 80s with a with a Walkman. Remember the Sony Walkman? I don't know if you guys remember that, right? So they've been, people have been, all the toys I've been clamoring about this, oh my God, everyone's going to go deaf with their Walkmans and blah, 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 right? It hasn't happened. And what I mean by that is the Walkmans of 40 years ago are far worse than this current generation because back then it was an analog device. You could turn that sucker up as loud as you wanted to, right? Every pair of wireless earbuds now function on a digital platform. Yes, you could theoretically turn it way up, but the control settings are much, much better now. More importantly, from that whole era of the actual, let's look at the data. The actual data really hasn't borne it out. If you look at population prevalence, risk estimates of hearing loss in, let's say, 40-year-olds 40, 40 nowadays, right, 30 years after, uh, you know, or maybe 50-year-olds nowadays, you know, 30, 30 years after um, Walkins came out versus a generation ago, they're really no different. I mean, maybe very, very, very subtly at best, but then, um, and the reason why it, it is, though, right, is because it doesn't matter who you are, right? Everybody's hearing begins monotonically declining, right? Steady state decline over your entire lifetime, beginning roughly in your age 20s, because your, your inner ear is post-mitotic. It does not regenerate. So over a lifetime of noise exposure, aging, genetic susceptibility, everyone loses some hearing. So yes, I'm, noise, especially workplace, industrial noise, gunfire noise, those big things, that makes a difference. AirPods, Walkmans, subtly probably to some degree too, but maybe not actually, right? It's a, it's a different order of magnitude than like a generation ago with artillery noise and gunfire noise and factories, right? So I, I don't think it's really being borne full out by the literature. Subtly maybe, but how much does that compare with everything else that affects your hearing over your lifetime, aging, cardiovascular risk factors affect your hearing too? It's probably a relatively a small drop in the bucket. It's definitely not good for you, but is it, I think it's probably a relatively drop in the bucket's contribution. So I, I don't put much in store by that necessarily of, of risk per se. And besides, even if it was like, what are you gonna do about it? Tell my daughter not to use her AirPods. I mean, like, let's just get on with a sign and say, we can say all we want, but society moves on and let's just like deal with it, right? Your other point about, you know, just personal prevention. No, that is real, but, and I, I shouldn't poo poo it too much because I always say hearing loss is honestly inevitable to some degree, right? Everyone's hearing changes, but you can change that slope to some degree. Listen, the big obvious ones, it, epidemiologically, the big, big risk factors for hearing loss epidemiologically, age, sex, race. Can't do anything about that. Interesting, I got to mention those too. Uh, race is a really interesting one. This is people who are, not should I say race, it's really skin color. People of darker skin have a much, much, much lower risk of hearing loss with aging. And that has to do, there's a corresponding amount of melanin in the cochlea, as in your skin, and that melanin in their ear actually protects in their ear. It's crazy. But the risk reduction with skin color race being a proxy, I guess, for skin color is huge, actually. So anyway, but age, sex, race, you can't do anything about Well, race, sex, you can imagine, well, women have less hearing loss than men. Probably has to do as a, as a um, environmental indicator. You know, men do more stupid stuff, right? But also estrogen might have a protective effect in the inner ear, too. But so age, sex, race, let's say you can't do anything about, right? Then the other big ones are um, noise. We, we talked about that. And that is something you can do about. Like the general rule of thumb I use my, my, leading my daily life is that 
if you are in an environment where at arm's length, it, you have to really raise your voice to be heard, that is such a theoretical situation, given enough time, can be damaging to your hearing, right? Now, obviously, if you're in the subway platform, it is really loud for those few seconds the train passes, eh, not as big a deal. But if you're, in that if you're in that subway working as a worker nine hours a day, eh, that can add up, right? Likewise, if you're mowing the lawn, that is loud enough that you can't talk to someone at arm's length, you need to use ear protection. So I, I think that's just a good rule of thumb. Anytime you're in an environment, arm's length, either raise your voice, be heard, that environment is theoretically enough to damage your hearing given enough time. Now, if you're going to be there for a long time, absolutely. Throw some headphones in. I mean, throw some headphones or earbuds or earmuffs or foam earplugs in without a doubt, right? But then the other risk factor to hearing loss, the, really the only ones you can really control, I got to be honest, is noise, right? All the other ones, which I'm going to show epidemiologically, are basically the cardiovascular risk factors, likely because the same things that lead to microvascular disease of the brain and other parts of the body can lead to microvascular disease in the inner ear. Again, yes, file a healthy diet, exercise for your hearing, I guess, but you're doing that anyway. <laughs> All right. So I, we don't, I don't bother mentioning it because it's, it's, it's almost moot. You're going to do it for your heart, not for your ear, right? The only one unique to the ear is obviously um, noise. And that, that is real. And that is something that is honestly, I think it's easy to deal with. You just, uh, if, you're going to, if you're going to a concert, just bring some earplugs. If you're using power equipment, throw on a pair of earmuffs. If you're firing guns, wear earmuffs too. Besides that, I mean, again, assume you're not in an industry where you really do have to be careful about it. And fortunately there, I think there's been, a, there's a 50 years now of OSHA protections, Occupational Safety Health Administration protections around, uh, around hearing. Obviously not always followed, but uh, I think it's clearly going the right direction. We'll continue going the right direction. Well, I don't know, Frank, I think I might tell my patients now, go for a run. It's good for your ears too. So thank you for that <laughs> advice. And really, sure, yeah. you know, Frank, thanks for being so, for so great on this podcast and uh, you know, I look forward to the work you're doing. We certainly hope to have you on Dementia Matters again. Thanks so much, Nate. Thank you for listening to Dementia Matters. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Or tell your smart speaker to play the Dementia Matters podcast. Please rate us on your favorite podcast app. It helps other people find our show and lets us know how we're doing. If you enjoy our show and want to support our work, consider making a gift to the Dementia Matters Fund through the UW Initiative to End Alzheimer's. All donations go towards outreach and production. Donate at the link in the description. Dementia Matters is brought to you by the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. It receives funding from private, university, state, and national sources, including a grant from the National Institutes on Aging for Alzheimer's Disease Research. This episode of Dementia Matters was produced by Amy Lambright-Murphy and Kaylin Rowerdink and edited by Alexia Spevacek. Our musical jingle is Cases to Rest by Blue Dot Sessions. To learn more about the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center, check out our website at adrc.wisc.edu. That's adrc.wisc.edu. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you have any questions or comments, email us at dementiamatters at medicine.wisc.edu. Thanks for listening.